our program tonight. First of all, the Jesus myth. What is the Jesus myth? What we want to examine in this session is who was Jesus, who did he claim to be, and how can we be sure that he was what the Bible says he was? How can we be sure that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be? We're going to start off with a bit of an illustration. If we were to go back 2,000 years from this day, we went 2,000 years back in time, so it wouldn't be 2018, it would be A.D. 18. The most powerful man on earth in AD 18 would have been the Roman Emperor. Does anybody know who the Roman Emperor was in AD 18? Not Augustus, but that's a good one. His name is in the Bible. Say again. Not Nero. (laughs) It was Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor 2,000 years ago today. The emperor of Rome was, was Tiberius. Isn't that interesting that he's the most powerful man alive at that time, but we struggle to remember his name? Um, what about Tiberius's wife? Do you know? No, sorry, Tiberius's mother. Do you know Tiberius's mother's name? No? Her name was Olivia. Could you name three of Tiberius's friends? Me, me neither. <laughs> I don't know that one. And could you name, could you quote anything famous that Tiberius said? Probably not. Let's move away from the most famous man or the most powerful man in the Roman Empire or the most, famous, you know, most powerful man around 2,000 years ago to a a backwater of the Roman Empire, a place called Palestine. We're going to go up to the north, an area called Galilee, in a little town called Nazareth. And if we went to Nazareth 2,000 years ago, we'd find a young man working in his dad's carpenter shop. What was his name? Jesus, right? No, his name. What was his mother's name? You know his mother's name. Could you name three of his friends? not so sure. (laughs) Peter, James, John, Matthew, the tax. Remember Dad and Thomas? Surely you remember Judas. I mean, he must must have been his friend for a little bit. And could you name anything, can you remember anything famous that he said? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your neighbor. Many, many things. The Good Samaritan. Lots and lots of things. That we, isn't that interesting? If you think about it, here is a guy working in a carpenter shop that we seem to know a lot more about than the most powerful man alive 2,000 years ago. And we want to ask, why is that? How did that come to be? Okay. Let's do that. Hooray, it works. Okay. Okay. Back in 1999, in fact it was December 1999, Time magazine put on their front cover Jesus of Nazareth and they have their Jesus at 2000. You know when you get to the end of the year, sometimes they'll do a news program where they do the news in review, you know, of the year, you know, what's happened in the last 12 months. And then when they get to the end of a decade, they might do the decade, or when they get to the end of a century, well, they were coming to the end of a millennium. 
And they were looking back and saying, uh, what have been the most you know, significant people, events of the last thousand years, of the last 2,000 years? Because we are approaching the year 2000. So they have on the cover, Jesus at 2000. And Reynolds Price, who wrote an article, I want you to notice what he wrote in Time magazine. He said, the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all human history has been Jesus of Nazareth. Wow, that is a powerful statement to make, right? Now, this is a news magazine. Time magazine is an American news magazine. It's not a religious magazine, right? But it's saying, this guy is saying, the single most powerful figure, not only in the last 2,000 years, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. What leads him to be able to make that kind of a claim? Well, basically, there have been more books written about Jesus of Nazareth than any other figure in the history of the world. There have been more songs written about Jesus of Nazareth than any other person in the history of the world. There have been more buildings dedicated to Jesus Christ than any other figure in human history. There are more statues chiseled to his likeness or supposed likeness um, more poems written, you name it, more hospitals opened, more schools opened to his honour than any other figure in human history. And by any measure, he has influenced and affected the lives of people on planet Earth more than any other person. And so he makes that claim. And what we want to do tonight is to see what does the Bible say about Jesus? Who was he and who did he claim to be? And is there any way of verifying that? So I want you to look at some of the statements that Jesus is claimed to have made. Notice this. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, sorry, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and if you want to get to the Father, you have to come through me. That's the only way. Now, where is the Father, by the way? Our Father, which art in heaven. So the Father is pictured as being in heaven. And Jesus is effectively saying here, no one gets to heaven except through me. That's an exceptionally exclusive claim, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's not a uh, kind of all roads lead to Rome kind of claim. That's a very exclusive claim for him to make. Here's another one he made. His, uh, John, the, the Gospel of John includes these quotes. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a woman who's just lost her brother. Her brother has died. And she is in grieving that loss. And Jesus turns up and he's speaking with her. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Again, a very dramatic claim. The claim that if you die believing in me, I can bring you back to life. I can resurrect you. That's a huge claim to make. Here's another one. He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's basically saying, I don't come from this planet. I mean, if I was to say something like that, hey, I'm not of this world, 
you're from this world, but not me. I'm not of this world. That would be a strange thing to say, and you would probably be very sceptical about anybody who said that. But Jesus said these kinds of things, and for some reason, people believed him. Not just a few, but millions, in fact, 2.3 billion people on planet Earth today claim to be Christians, followers of Christ. So when Jesus made these kinds of claims, at some point people started to believe these things about him. Here's another one. The great I am. He, he's talking to the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership of his day. Jesus was a Jewish person. And he's talking to the religious leadership of his day. And he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I need to tell you the significance of this statement. First of all, Jesus lives about 2,000 years from where we are today. We're in 2018. But Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He walked the earth 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years before Jesus, Abraham lived. And so effectively, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is saying, hey, I was around before Abraham. That would be like me telling you I was around before Jesus. Now that statement might make you sit up and take notice, or it might just make you dismiss me out of hand, Right? But Jesus made this kind of claim. I just need to let you in on something else he's saying here. Because Jesus didn't say, before Abraham was, I was, which would have been startling enough. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the reason he used those words was the words I am had been associated with the God of the Old Testament. In other words... Maybe some of you have heard the story of Moses and Moses was a shepherd and he was in the wilderness leading his sheep and then he saw a bush burning and he approached that bush and God spoke to him out of the bush. And Moses says, who shall I say send me because the, the voice told him to go to Egypt and free the slaves. And he said, who should I say sent me? And the voice said, tell them I am has sent you. In other words, when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he's really saying, I'm the God of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. And they knew that for sure because they took up stones to stone him to death. So you know they understood what he was saying. In fact, we could argue that Jesus was crucified because of who he claimed to be. Okay? So these were the kind of statements Jesus made. Here's another one. Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. He's praying these words. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, Jesus here is saying, I was around, not only was I around before Abraham, I was around before the world existed. These are amazing claims for anybody to make. And what we want to examine really is why is it that people today still take Jesus seriously when he made these enormous claims? Could they possibly be true? Many of you probably have uh, heard of C.S. Lewis largely because of the children's books that he wrote called The Chronicles of Narnia, right? 
So maybe you've heard of, uh, you know, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or Prince Caspian or, you know, The Chronicles of Narnia, children's books that I'm sure many of you have heard of. But C.S. Lewis was not simply a children's writer. He was a theologian at Oxford University. And he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And I want you to notice what he says here in relation to Jesus and how we ought to relate to him. Notice what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And this is what people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Ever heard that before? You know, you ask people, you go down the street, go to the shopping mall and ask people, do you believe Jesus was a real person? I think most people will say, yes, I recognize that Jesus was historically a real person. And then you say, who do you think Jesus was? A lot of people will say, well, I think Jesus was a good person. Or I think Jesus was a good teacher. But fewer people are willing to say, I think Jesus was the Son of God. But here, C.S. Lewis is saying that's what we ought not to say. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So here, he's making the case, C.S. Lewis is saying, look, the kind of things that Jesus said, if Jesus was a good moral teacher, he wouldn't be saying those kind of things. And if he's saying those kind of things, it's either because he's lying, or because he's mad, or because he's actually telling the truth. So that's something for us to think about. We're going to look at Jesus and his origins. And here's a, I want to bring this sort of illustration to you for a moment. Prince William and Princess Catherine had their first child born on 22nd of July 2013. Okay, and his name was Prince George Alexander Louis. But about a month before that, in June, the uh, Sunday Telegraph, which is a Sydney newspaper, they had a lift out uh, from the, you know, uh, an extra piece of the paper that you could lift out, and it said, royal baby, and it says, oh baby, is this the most anticipated childbirth since Jesus? Isn't that interesting? Now, why would they say that? Of course, there was a lot of fuss about the fact that a royal baby was about to be born. But, of course, the point is that this child that was to be born was going to grow up one day to be king. Right? That's the point. And now they're saying, hey, we're anticipating the birth of this child. Is this the most anticipated childbirth since Jesus? Why would they put that in there? What they're recognising is that Jesus' birth was anticipated. But now when we talk about Prince George, his birth was anticipated, I guess, nine months after it was announced that, you know, there's going to be a baby on the way. That's no great shakes, right? But Jesus' birth was anticipated centuries in advance. 
That's something else. And they're recognizing the fact that Jesus' birth was anticipated. And you have this written about 700 years B.C. 700 years B.C., Micah writes, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So here is a prediction 700 years before the birth of Christ that out of Bethlehem would come the ruler of Israel whose goings forth were from of old, from everlasting. How long's everlasting? Well, it's everlasting, right? So here is a prediction, and of course, you may remember the story of the wise men going to Jerusalem at the time of the birth of Jesus and saying, hey, where is he who's going to be born king of the Jews? And Herod, who was the king of Israel... He told the priest, he said, can you look it up? And the scribes went back and they looked it up in the Bible. And they said, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew. Written 700 years before he was born. Well, we're going to turn to a prophecy. I mentioned this last night. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Daniel again, written about 550 years BC. And Daniel is in Babylon, he's a captive of Babylon, or has been a captive of Babylon. He rose to the, uh, the, the position of prime minister there. And Daniel is praying, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying because God's people had been taken captive from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, and God had predicted that they would be there for 70 years. And Daniel recognises that time's nearly up. So Daniel is praying to God, And he's saying, God, don't forget the promise you made to return us to Jerusalem. Don't forget your people. Not because we're so good, because we're not, but because we don't want people to think that you've forgotten. We don't want people to think that you don't keep your promises, so please remember and return us to Jerusalem. And of course, eventually they did go back to Jerusalem. But I want you to notice what happens. While Daniel is praying, an angel is sent from heaven to Daniel. It's the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel has a message for Daniel. And this is the message. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Let's pause there for a moment. Who are Daniel's people? The Jewish people, right? The Jewish people. They had come from Judah. They had been taken captive and gone to Babylon. So it's the Jewish people that he's talking about. For your people, that's the Jewish people, and your holy city, what would the holy city be? Jerusalem. All right? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All of these things were to be accomplished in this 70-week period. Well, what is this 70-week period? What does it mean? Is it literal? If we were to ask the question, if it was 70 weeks, how many days in a week? You're not sure. (laughs) It's seven, right? It's seven. Seven days in a week. So 70 weeks would amount to how many days? It's on the screen right there, 490 days, okay? Now the question is, When it says 70 weeks, are these literally 70 weeks or do they represent some other time period? For instance, 
How many weeks in a year? 52, right? So if I said to you 70 weeks, that's like a year and a bit, isn't it? It's not even a year and a half. Um, if it was literally 70 weeks, okay? But there's an indication, and, and sort of, in other words, uh, Daniel would be alive if 70 weeks were started in his period of time. He'd be alive a year and a half later for, to see this you know, transpire. But there's actually, in the language itself, there is the suggestion that this is a symbolic time period. Because if I was to say to you, hey, why don't we meet up somewhere in a year and a half? That's probably the terminology I would use, right? I probably wouldn't say, hey, let's meet in 70 weeks' time. I wouldn't say that because that's an unusual way of referencing time, isn't it? In the Bible, here's one of the keys to understanding Bible prophecy. In Bible prophecy, many of the periods that are listed in Bible prophecy represent symbolic periods of time. For instance, in Ezekiel 4.6, the Bible says, I have laid on you a day for each year. In other words, one day, one literal day, represents one prophetic year. Here in the book of Numbers, it tells us, for each day, one year. Talking about other periods of time that God had used. And so these 70 weeks, rather than meaning 490 days, actually mean 490 literal years. Now, how do we know that for sure? Am I making this up? Well, first and foremost, while you may be hearing it first for the first time here tonight, this has been known for centuries. In fact, the first people to apply the day-year principle to this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 were the Jews themselves before the time of Christ. So it's the Jews themselves that applied the day-year principle to this prophecy before the time of Christ. There was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, in this passage, it says 70 weeks of years indicating to us that this is what it means. So the 70 weeks here are not 490 days, but they are 490 years that this prophecy is referring to. And you'll see how this makes sense as we go along. So let's put this 490 years up on a chart there. There's your 70 weeks, 490 literal years. So far, so good. Wouldn't it be great if we knew the beginning of this time period? I mean, then, if you could know the beginning, then you'd know the end, right? Well, the Bible is now, the next verse in this passage in Daniel 9, it's going to split this 70 weeks up into different time periods. Notice what it says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks... And 62 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Remember that Daniel is in Babylon. The angel has come to him to deliver this message. The city of Jerusalem is in ruins. And so the angel is saying from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? I'll give you time 
It's 69, right? So let's put that on the chart. He says here, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks in total, representing 483 literal years, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah. Woo! The Messiah. Okay, so if we could just know when this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given, then we could have a way of working out when the Messiah is going to show up. Remember, this is being written some 500 years BC. Well, can we actually know when this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given? Yes, we can, because it's given in the Bible. It's in the Bible, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 7 and verse 13. It's called Artaxerxes' Decree. And it says this, I issue a decree, sounds like a decree to me. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And the people were allowed to return to Jerusalem to complete the restoration and the rebuilding of of Jerusalem. And we know that when that was given. It was given in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, and that amounts to 457 BC. 457 BC, that decree was given. So we can put that on the chart here. 457 BC, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is given. From that time, you have seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 full weeks, 483 literal years. And that takes you to the time of the Messiah, or what we would call 27 AD. Now, I know there's a bunch of mathematicians out there, and you're probably thinking, well, if you've got 457 BC, so that would be like minus 457, right? Minus 457, and you add 483 to that on a calculator, that doesn't bring you to 27, does it? It brings you to 26. And there's a reason for that, and I want to tell you why. When you reckon the BC to AD dating, you have 3 BC and 2 BC and then 1 BC, and then it goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. There's no year zero. You can look up the history books. You can Google and say, hey, what happened in year zero? You know what happened in year zero? Zero. That's what happened in year zero. Nothing happened in year zero. There was no year zero. Okay? So when we're talking about the years from BC to AD, BC is before Christ. AD is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. By the way, didn't mention this earlier, you realize that every time you write the date, you're recognizing the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that? This year is what year? 2018, right? It's 2018. Why is it 2018? Why is it 386 or 5,682? Why is it 2018? It's 2018 because approximately 2018 years ago, something happened. Jesus turned up. Every text you receive, every email you receive, has the date. And every text, every email, every time you look at the date on your watch, I've got mine right here, it confirms the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So anyway, that's the BC AD dating method. So we know that when you go from 457 BC and you add the 483 years of this time prophecy, you come to AD 27. From the going forth of the command to restore Jerusalem in 457 BC, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Then you ex should expect to find the Messiah. Did anything happen in 27 AD? Can we know? Does the Bible tell us? If you go to the Gospel of Luke, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are basically biographies of the life of Jesus Christ. And they're told from the perspectives of the four individuals who wrote the book, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You go to the Gospel of Luke and notice what it says here. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we know when that was. That's been calculated. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is 27 AD. But I want you to notice something else here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. That John there is John the Baptist. What you have here is a listing of seven different rulers who were ruling in that region at that time. And you can narrow this down. So for instance, let's imagine we'll play a little game here. I'm thinking of a year, and I want you to guess which year it is, okay? So the year I'm thinking of, um, John Howard is Prime Minister of Australia, okay? Now, how, how long was John Howard Prime Minister? I think it was 11 years, right? Quite a while. So it could be any one of 11 years. And then I'm going to say, this year that I'm thinking of, John Howard is Prime Minister of Australia, but Tony Blair is also the Prime Minister of Great Britain. That's going to narrow it down a little bit, isn't it? And if I was to say to you, and George Bush, George W. Bush, is the President of the United States, that's going to narrow the field down again a little bit more. And if I was to say to you, Yasser Arafat is the leader of the PLO, that narrows the field. And every leader I add narrows the field down. Well, the only year when all these leaders are ruling together is 27 AD. So the Bible provides us with historical evidence for the timing when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. This is Luke chapter 3. A little later in the same chapter... It says this, when all the people were baptised, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptised. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom, in you, I am well pleased. Jesus gets baptised, 27 AD. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit, 27 AD. You know why that's significant? The English word we use, anointed, do you know what it means in Hebrew? It means Messiah. In other words, when Jesus got anointed by the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry, he was Messiahed. 
in 27 AD. The Greek word we are more common we more commonly know is, is Christ. The word Messiah in the Greek means Christ. In English, it simply means the anointed one. So Jesus was anointed. Notice what it says in, um, well, let, let's pick this up in Mark. When Jesus was baptized and he began his ministry, the first things he says is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first thing Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry after being baptized is, the time is fulfilled. Well, what time? The time of Daniel chapter 9. The time is fulfilled. Well, we want to go back to Daniel chapter 9 because the prophecy is not yet finished. We have seen the, the, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem Seven weeks and 62 weeks leads us to 27 AD. Jesus gets baptized and begins his ministry as the Messiah. Daniel 9 verse 26, it continues this prophecy. It says this, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So notice this. We've come to 27 AD. Jesus is baptized. And remember, there were seven weeks and 62 weeks to this period. It says, after the 62 weeks, after this period, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Well, what does that mean, to be cut off? The Bible actually explains it itself, because there's another prophecy about Jesus in the book of Isaiah, written 800 years BC. It says this about Jesus. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. This is talking about Jesus going to the cross as a sacrificial lamb. And talk about more of that in the second session. But the fact is Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he died. And the Bible says he was cut off but not for himself. He didn't die for himself. He died for you and I. Jesus was cut off but not for himself. He was cut off for you and I. The next verse of Daniel chapter 9 in this incredible prophecy, it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. You remember we said that initially the angel had said 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, 70 weeks. Then it said seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? That was 69. That means there's one week left. And that's referred to in this verse in Daniel 9.27. It says, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, this final week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice an offering. Let's take a look at that final week. AD 27, Jesus was baptized, began his work as the Messiah. One week would be seven years. That takes us through to AD 34. In the middle of the week, what's halfway between seven? Three and a half, right? Coincidentally, or maybe providentially, Jesus' ministry was three and a half years long. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years long, and in the middle of the week, prophetically, AD 31, Jesus was crucified. 
He was crucified in the middle of the week. And the Bible verse had said he would bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Because when Jesus died on the cross, AD 31, he brought an end to the sacrifices of the temple. Because the sacrifices in the Old Testament economy, if you were one of God's people, you would come, you might have committed a sin and you wanted forgiveness, you would bring an animal, usually a lamb, and you would confess your sins upon that lamb. And that lamb would be taken and it would be sacrificed. That innocent lamb would be sacrificed for the sins that you had committed. And you would be permitted to go free. Because symbolically you had transferred your sin to that lamb and that lamb bore your sin. And they would do this every day in the temple services. But when Jesus died, the Bible says he would bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And in fact, when you go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 38, it says when Jesus died on the cross, it says then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating the end of the earthly sanctuary services. Because Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the one who died in our place to pay the price for our sins. In the midst of the week, he would bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Absolutely powerful. When I first understood this, I told you I used to be an atheist, and when I first started to discover the God and the Bible, and I understood this prophecy the first time, I was just jumping up and down. It was so exciting. I mean, this is incredible stuff. I like Daniel chapter 2, but I like this more. In the midst of the week, AD 31, Jesus was crucified. And people were saying, well, uh, what about this other three and a half years, right? What about that? Because it says he'll make a covenant with many for one week. And if you're looking at the uh, top line, remember we've got this 70 weeks of 490 years. They come to an end here. So what happens in this three and a half years? Well, in the book of Hebrews, I want you to notice what it says. Paul is writing, Paul was a Jew. He became a Christian and he wrote a book to the Jewish people called the book of Hebrews. And he says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, that was in the first three and a half years of ministry, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The Bible says he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Jesus did that for three and a half years of his own ministry. He died, was buried, was resurrected. He ministered to, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. Then he ascended to heaven. And for the next three and a half years, they ministered, taking his word to the rest of his people. Then we come to a time in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, Stephen is preaching the gospel. He's preaching to the Jewish leadership. He's preaching a powerful message about how God has worked through the Jewish people and that then Jesus came and he was the Messiah, but they crucified him and that they needed to repent of their sins and ask God for forgiveness. But they didn't want to hear Stephen's message and they blocked their ears. And it says they stoned Stephen 
as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen was stoned to death. And while they were stoning Stephen to death, they laid their coats at the feet of a man called Saul, who was a zealous Jew. Saul eventually became Paul, the apostle, who wrote half the books of the New Testament. So what you find is with Saul, who became Paul, Paul becomes, and he writes this in the New Testament, he writes that he has become an apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, he's become an apostle to the non-Jewish peoples. And so you find that this 70 weeks is completed and the gospel then goes to all the world. You may remember that in the gospels, Jesus said to his 12 disciples, Go not to the Gentiles, but go rather first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's what they did. Initially, the gospel was spread amongst God's own people, the Jews, and then they took it to the rest of the world. And that's why this prophecy had said, 70, years, 70 weeks rather are determined for your people and your holy city. Does that mean that the Jews are now excluded from the plan of salvation? Not at all. Not at all. Every human being on planet earth has much access to Jesus as anybody else. It's just that the flag that was carried by the Jewish nation for God, they were carrying God's message. That was then passed to the apostles and to the early Christians. And now they carried the flag for God and carried his message forward to all nations. So a Jew has as much access to the gospel as you and I. Maybe some of you are Jews. I'm not. But God has made the gospel available to everyone. One of the ways in which it makes it easier perhaps to understand Daniel chapter 9, this is some of the, the verses that we have covered here, is because the passage in Daniel chapter 9 covers material relating to the Messiah and to the restoration of Jerusalem. And so it will combine information about the Messiah, the Prince, as well as the restoration of Jerusalem. And sometimes people find that confusing. It's called poetic parallelism in the Hebrew Bible, where they will share one idea about one subject, then they will share another idea about another subject, then they'll come back to the first subject and so on. Jesus was walking after his resurrection. He had risen from the dead. It was Sunday. He was risen from the dead. And two of his disciples were walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a little town about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus then appears to them. But he withholds his appearance. They don't know who he is. And they're chatting away about what's taken place over the weekend, how Jesus had been crucified, he'd been buried in the tomb, and they're hearing that some women have seen Jesus alive and they don't know what to believe. And Jesus sidles up towards them and he says, what are you talking about? And they said, where have you been? Are you the only man who hasn't been in Jerusalem all weekend? Don't you know what's going on? How Jesus, we, you know, we thought that he was going to be the one to restore the kingdom. And uh, they talk to him and eventually they get to a house, their house and they invite him in and he stops by with them and they break bread together and as he breaks bread, he reveals himself to them and they said, oh, it's Jesus. 
And at that moment, he disappears. <laughs> he just vanishes. And they're so excited. They've seen Jesus. They run back to Jerusalem. But while he's on the road, before they get to the house, he talks to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus had risen from the dead, but instead of saying, hey, look, it's me, the Messiah, he decides to take them through a Bible study in the Old Testament of all the prophecies that relate to the Messiah because he wants them to understand from the Bible that what happened to the Messiah was supposed to happen. And then he reveals himself to them. Do you realize that in the Old Testament that there are approximately 300 prophecies or allusions to the life of Christ that he fulfilled in his life? More than 300. When he came the first time, he fulfilled those 300 prophecies and allusions in his lifetime. What I want to say to you is, we talked the other night about the fact that Jesus said he was going to come again, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And did you know that in the New Testament there are over 300 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ? So when Jesus was alive 2,000 years ago and walked the earth, he fulfilled 300 prophecies from the Old Testament about his life. In his life, he fulfilled those. There are 300 prophecies that say he's going to come again. I believe them. Do you know why I believe them? I believe them because he came the first time. He came the first time in fulfillment of prophecy. That's, that's history now. We can look back on that. I believe he's coming again because he's already proven that he can fulfill prophecy. It's already done. It's in the history books. And so just as Jesus really came the first time, he's really coming the second time. And we can have absolute confidence in that because he came the first time and fulfilled all those prophetic signs.